This is Dr. John Walton in his teaching on the book of Job. This is session number 12, Role of Wife and Friends. Let's take a few minutes and, and look at the, the friends of Job and his wife. And let's talk about the roles they play. Of course, they show up at the end of chapter 2 here. And so we're introduced to them in, in the plot. But let's take a look at how that's all working out. Um, let's start with the friends. First of all, we can think of the friends as individuals. Um, the book really wouldn't use three friends if each one didn't have a role. We have to think of them then as, as having individual profiles. Again, as you might recall, I'm treating this as literary construct, so the three friends very intentionally fill three roles. Uh, that's what the author wants to do with them. That's how their characters are used. And so as readers, we shouldn't just lump them all together and think of them as a corporate group, but rather try to see the role that each one plays. Eliphaz, um, as he makes his um, explanations, uh, his comments to Job, is focused on the weight of personal experiences. Now, we know people like this. Uh, they'll talk to us about their lives and their stories and what they've seen or experienced or concluded, and their conversation is based on those personal experiences that they've had. Bildad is more inclined to talk about the wisdom of the ages. He's the philosopher among the group. Let's, let's think about how people have always thought about these things. And so, let me deliver it to you from, a, from an, uh, an educated person. Here's the wisdom of the ages. Zophar is most inclined to find understanding in a system of thinking. Let's systematize things. Everything's black and white if we just organize it correctly. And so we've got these three personalities, these three characters, experience, wisdom of the ages, systemization. And so they each have their own role to play. At the same time, of course, they are acting as a group as well. There are certain things that they all have in common. So the friends corporately represent the sages of the ancient world. These are supposed to be the wisest people around. If anybody's got an answer, if any explanation exists, these are the people. These are the specialists. You've got the world's best right here, ranked one, two, and three. I don't know which is which. But here they are. So they are there to present this, the, the height of wisdom in the ancient world. But in the book, as we've mentioned already, they are foils. The book's playing them because even though they have this reputation, the wisest of the wise, in the end, they are fools. The book rejects the wisdom that they have to offer as being shallow, inadequate, 
flawed reasoning built on flimsy assumptions. Here they come as representatives of wisdom, and instead they're dismissed as misguided fools. It's an interesting strategy for the book to take the best the world has to offer and to turn it on its ear and reject it summarily. The friends collectively play the role of the challenger's philosophical representatives. Let me explain that. Remember the challenger has said, does Job serve God for nothing? The friends represent retribution principle thinking. Remember, that's where they build their fort. And that means they're working on the principle of the retribution principle and therefore working on the assumption that people get what they deserve. Therefore, when Job suffers, they easily conclude that he must be suffering because he has done some great evil. They don't know what evil he has done. They, they make their random wild guesses throughout their speeches, but they don't know. They have no evidence. They have not seen any of it with their own eyes. But they assume it must be true. And so they draw the conclusion that Job has some serious issues to deal with and that he needs to do so. Confess those sins, whatever they might be. Do whatever it takes to get your stuff back. The friends are all about stuff. And since the challenger had said that if Job loses his stuff, he's going to give up his righteousness, we can see that the friends are working in that same line of argumentation. They are working hard to persuade him. It really is all about stuff. And your response should be to get your stuff back. And if Job believes them, if Job responds along that line that it really is about stuff and I just need to get my stuff back, that would show that the challenger was right. That Job's righteousness really, in the end, was all about stuff. And so we can conclude that the friends, unbeknownst to them, they are inadvertently pressing the agenda for the very point that the challenger brought up. Is it about stuff or is it about righteousness? The challenger suspected it was about stuff. Seems to know human beings pretty well. The friends tried to help Job think of it in terms of stuff. But he wasn't so easy to persuade. Now, when we understand this role of the friends, we can hopefully discard a couple other misconceptions about the role of the friends. The role of the friends are not, the role of the friends is not so that readers can be instructed on how not to give counsel and comfort. Lots of times people respond to the friends in the book of Job by saying what ill comfort they offer, how unsatisfying 
uh, they are in trying to uh, commiserate with Job and bring comfort to him. They're, they're pretty, pretty rough on him. But the reader is not supposed to therefore say, well, now I know how I shouldn't try to comfort somebody who's suffering. That's not what the friends are there for. By the way, don't, don't do that, but um, the friends are not there for that. They're not role models, in that case negative role models, but they're not role models of any sort. They're role players. They play a role in the book, an important literary, theological, philosophical, rhetorical role. And when we're trying to understand the book, we should be trying to understand that role they play because that's how they're being used in the book. And that's how the teaching will emerge from the book with them in their proper place. So much for the friends. We'll detail their specific speeches later on. But let's turn our attention to the wife. Now, when she speaks up, Job has already suffered considerably. He's lost both stages. He's lost his, uh, his prosperity. He's lost his health. It's interesting that the wife is not brought in as a conversation partner, sitting next to him weeping over their lost children. She's not really given a personality like that. Again, she's a role player. And as with the friends, she also is standing on the side of the challenger to try to push Job in a particular direction. In one sense, we could say that um, with the wife's words, curse God and die, um, she represents the quick and easy solution for the challenger's point of view. I mean, if, if Job has already been pushed over the brink, already you know, has, has lost all sense of righteousness or faithfulness to God, She'll push him over the edge, curse God and die, and he'll say, yeah, forget it all, chuck it. Okay, so that's the quick and easy. The friends are representing the same kind of thing. For the wife, it's all about the stuff you lost. For the friends, try to get that stuff back. So she's really working in tandem with the friends and in tandem with the challenger, pushing that agenda. Okay, it's not going to just be left to... Job's own mental workings to figure out whether his righteousness is more important than his stuff. He's being pushed, pushed by his wife, pushed by his friends. He's being given the suggestion, curse God and die. Make it about stuff. Do what it takes to get your stuff back. So that's the role she plays. Again, not that life partner who mourns alongside of you. And this is not supposed to be a, a, a critical shot at women by the author of the book. It has nothing to do with that. It's just a, the strategy of the moment of how is he going to respond. Job, of course, responds to her as a foolish woman. And he states that, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Again, a very positive response about God um, and about how we respond to God, about not holding him accountable. 
And so she serves, his wife serves as an instrument of the challenger's expectations, just as the friends do. Once again, the challenger would be proven correct if Job follows his wife's advice, just as the challenger would be proven correct if Job follows his friend's advice. The rhetorical role, then, of the wife. After all, this is a, this is a one-off. She makes one statement, then she's out of the picture. First of all, it avoids the quick win for the challenger. This is not going to be easy. Second, it provides opportunity for Job to again express his faithfulness. Not only can God take away what he has given, he can strike with pain and disease, and Job remains faithful. Third, it serves as a prelude and transition to the friends, because of course she comes on the scene before the friends do. Fourthly, it proposes a solution opposite the direction the friends will go. The friends want to tell Job how to live with renewed benefits. She tells him life is not worth living and tells him how to die. Fifth, both wife and friends assume benefits are essential to the equation, pulling Job in the direction the challenger has suggested that he will go. And therefore, all of them, the friends and Job's wife alike, serve as unwitting agents for the challenger's expectations. So the scene is set. The scenes in heaven have ended. The dialogues are about to begin. We are now back in the earthly realm where we will stay because even Yahweh, when he speaks, comes to the earthly realm to speak. The challenger will have no further role. It's only his surrogates, the friends that stand in and make a case. So he will have no further role. And now we let the dialogue unfold as we move into Job's lament in chapter 3 and the uh, first series of dialogues in the uh, dialogue section. This is Dr. John Walton in his teaching on the book of Job. This is session number 12, Role of Wife and Friends.